Hey guys, it's Jordan. I would just like to thank everyone who has been listening to our show. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Facebook, at Twitter with the username Grimsby's Chamber, and on Reddit as username SwayJ34. And as usual, this podcast contains strong language and graphic details of violence. Enjoy the show. time to be alive right now. I was just informed that there's a nasty virus going around and infecting some of the people across the globe. So please stay safe and wash those hands of yours. I need somebody here to tell the stories to. And some of you asked if I had anything to do with this coronavirus and the answer is... Of course not. I take very good care of my bats. I never would ever turn them into soup. They are fine hanging up, eating the remaining of the prisoners who are not with us anymore. But anyways, I hope you're ready for today's stories. So here we go. So the first story was written by T.J. Richardson, and as usual, he'll be narrating the story. He seems to be doing that quite frequently, and he always wants to bring that annoying prisoner, Jordan. And this story is titled, The Lady in the Sea. I haven't been sailing in such a long time. The mist of the sea spraying my face brings a sense of calm my soul has been yearning for. I hear the captain call me from the deck. Jack me, boy! Grab the last of supplies and get your ass up here! Yes, Captain! I grab the last of the supplies and walk up the board to the ship. Besides myself and the captain, there's about ten other men on the crew. We've been hired for a simple supply delivery for a random wealthy asshole who decided to live on a remote island and can only get his supplies via boat. I have just missed life on a boat, taking a few days just to live on the sea. So when they asked me to help with the run, 
I agreed immediately. We were ready to set sail and head out into the sea. The beginning of the trip started off pretty usual. The men kept the ship afloat, and we would just bullshit and enjoy the sun. After a while, I noticed one of the men off to the side, remaining by himself. I walked over to him and asked how he was doing. He looked at me strangely and then made some weird movements with his hand. He can't speak, lad. We found him stranded out at sea, among the wreckage of a ship. I looked at the poor bastard. He had clearly been through hell. He signed a few more of those hand movements to me. Hello, Bill. It's nice to meet you. The man gave me a puzzled look. Yeah, I've known a sign for a while now. My sister is deaf, so I've had to learn. <laughs> well, I'll be damned. Someone can finally communicate with the poor bastard. The captain gave me a solid pat on the back and walked away. A few nights in, we were all sitting in the break room and just bullshitting and telling stories. After a while, the captain spoke up. All right, Jack. Now that we have someone who can understand the poor bastard, let's hear his story. I looked at Bill and signed to ask if he could tell me his story. He nodded and started to sign. Bill says he was part of a crew doing similar runs to us, just delivering shipments from port to port. He says his crew was 30 men deep and that they were some of the toughest bastards the sea's ever seen. One night, the ship's warning bells rang out. Bill ran out of his bunk to see a monster tearing apart the ship and the men. The beast had tentacles that reached for miles and could crush the ship's and the men's bones. It had rows and rows of teeth that made the jaw of a great white look like that of a guppy. Its eyes were a blood red that burned in the night sky. He watched as some of the men tried to fight the beast, but they failed. Somehow, in some of the madness, some of the men went mad and started attacking the others. Bill saw how hopeless the situation was and jumped overboard to try to escape. The ship was destroyed, and when a plank flew off the boat, it knocked him unconscious. And then you men saved him. The men all sat around in silence, listening to the horror I helped the mute man tell. Finally, the captain spoke up. Now, now, lads. It's just a tall tale from a man who drank too much seawater. Just a fever dream, nothing more, nothing less. So get some rest, lads. We'll be back at it first light. And the captain and the crew walked away to the bunks. I looked at Bill, and the man looked exhausted, like telling the story took away some of his life. I gave him a smile, and I walked away to get some sleep too. I woke up to the sound of our alarm bell ringing. I jumped up and threw in my gear and ran up top. When I came to the top, I saw all of the men looking over the edge of the boat. I ran over to see what had happened, expecting to see that one of our men had gone overboard. When I reached the edge, I saw quite the opposite. There was a woman lying on a piece of driftwood, completely nude. She was a beautiful young woman, and the crew was mesmerized. Alright me lads, let's get this poor lass on deck. We could still save her. We all jumped into action, and with great teamwork, we pulled the woman on deck. Her breasts shined in the moonlight, her wet skin glistening. The men were in awe of this beauty. The ship's doctor was examining her, and the captain yelled at me to go grab blankets for the poor girl. 
I ran below deck and grabbed some blankets, and as I turned around, I saw Bill. He was very confused, and I signed to him that we had found a woman lost at sea. He helped grab some of the blankets, and we ran topside. We'd come to the top to see the men still surrounding the woman. Bill and I covered her in blankets and stepped back. Besides being nude and wet, the woman seemed unharmed. Doesn't make any damn sense. This woman should be damn near dead. She's got no clothes and the sea is freezing at this time of night. The captain was right. The woman looked fine, all things considered. The woman then started to cough up water and the docks set her up straight so she'd get the water out of her lungs. Her wet hair covered her face as she bent over to cough. After her coughing fit, she looked at us with intense eyes. Bill faltered back and started signing to me, hurried and manic. We all started looking at the bewildered man. What the hell is he saying, Jack? I, I don't know, Captain. He's signing too fast. I signed back to him that he needed to slow down for me. He took a deep breath and signed one word to me. Monster. I felt my blood run cold, and I turned around to see the woman now standing, her eyes bright blood red. Before I could say a word, the woman's arms started to shift into tentacles of a squid, and she reached out and grabbed the dock. Her tentacles wrapped around the man's neck, and we heard a large crack as she broke his neck. The men started to scream and run, and started grabbing anything they could use as a weapon. The woman's face turned into an empty void full of rows and rows of razor-sharp teeth. She grabbed a crew member and crushed his head in her maw with a sickening smash. She was destroying the men on the ship, tentacles squeezing the life out of the men, her teeth feasting on their flesh. Bill and I were dodging the attacks and trying to make a run for the lifeboat when a piece of the boat flew up and knocked us back. The captain ran at the beast and jammed a spear into her body. She let out a blood-curdling scream, and she turned back into a woman. The woman then grabbed the captain by his face and just looked into his eyes. She pulled his head close to hers and whispered something to him. The captain stumbled back and stood there dazed. He turned around to show us he now had blood-red eyes. He pulled the spear out of the beast and started to walk towards us. The beast stood there smiling at us pure malice in her devilish stare. Bill and I ran below deck and locked every door we could along the way. We finally made it to the storage room and locked the doors. There was silence. Then we heard a slight tap, tap, tap on the other side of the door. Come on out, boys. Make this easy. The mother just wants you to join her. You'll be much happier as the part of the mother. Captain, get a hold of yourself. We need to get off this damn boat and get the hell out of here. Just then the spear broke through the door and almost ran Bill through. She's gonna feast on your bones, boys. She'll devour you slow. Time to feed the mother. He jammed the spear through the door again, but this time I grabbed the spear and broke it in half. Bill and I bum-rushed the door and knocked it down on the captain. I then jammed the spear tip into the captain's gut, and Bill and I ran up the stairs to the deck. When we got topside, we found the woman. She was standing there, still nude, but her skin was now scaly and greenish. We tried to run towards the boat, but the beast knocked us over with her tentacles. As we tried to get up, 
we saw the captain stumble up onto the deck, the spear tip still protruding from his stomach. He walked over to the beast and stood in front of her. Let me kill them, mother. They will be a delicious meal for you. The beast reverted to her woman form and put her hand on the spear tip. She then ripped it out of the captain's gut and the poor bastard's entrails protruded from the wound. The beast grabbed a handful of the captain's guts and opened her devilish maw and started to devour the poor bastard's innards. He made a scream that would have stolen the soul from any man. After she devoured him, she grabbed the spear tip and chucked it at us. It embedded itself in my right shoulder and I screamed with pain. She ran over to us with ungodly speed and jumped on Bill. She then whispered into his ear, and then she smiled at me with a menacing grin, those rows of teeth showing ever so slightly. Bill turned to me and looked at me, a sense of purpose in his eyes. He pulled the spear tip from my shoulder and held it to my throat. The beast smiled at us and watched with excitement in her eyes. Then Bill smiled at me, and I realized what had happened. Bill was deaf. He couldn't hear the monster's spell. He spun around and jammed the spear tip into the monster's chest. She let out a blood-curdling scream and stumbled around. Her arms became tentacles again, and she grabbed Bill. As she stumbled on the deck, they knocked over one of the lanterns on the deck and it lit the deck aflame. The two were squirming around on the deck, flames spitting everywhere, when I noticed the flames hit the fuel line. I started to run for the edge when the ship exploded and sent me flying over the edge. When I awoke, I was lying on a beach. My clothes were ripped and soaked. I looked around bewildered and tried to make sure I didn't have any horrible fever dream. I looked around in my surroundings and I saw a gas station in the distance. I could use their phone to call for help and explain what had happened to the ship and to the crew. As I started to walk away from the ocean, I looked back one last time. In the distance, I could make out a woman in the water, blood red eyes staring back at me, a devil's grin on her face. I love a good creature horror story. And it's weird because that gas station that the lad mentions at the end of the story sounds awfully familiar. Hmm? Oh well. So the next story was written by Juliana Pietro D'Angelo and will be narrated by one of the prisoners that, well, has to be locked up in a different cell because she has the tendency to escape from time to time. 
But please welcome Lady Spookaria, and she will be narrating the story titled, Here Comes Another. Day one. I just recently started staying at a new hotel. It's very quiet, but I don't mind it. The silence helps me focus on my paperwork. The reason I'm writing is that I like to log my excursions from work and from my colleagues. I'm only staying for a few days until I can go back to my quarter, which is a few sectors over. We can't have technology during our job though. No clue why. Anyways, I'm excited to meet other people. Can't wait! Heart, Alex. Day 2. I never mentioned what my job is. I investigate certain sites in other sectors. Most people aren't supposed to go to the other sectors, but my job is one of the few exceptions. My assignment at the moment is a site in sector number 77. It was rumoured to have protesters about our leader, Dr. Nest X. I have no clue why people disrespect him. He made us all orderly. Today one of them came up to my room and asked if I disliked his rule as well. Somehow I managed to say that I actually liked our ruler and that they should see someone else. I hope this goes well. Heart, Alex. Day 3. I investigated the site today. Pretty weird. I walked over and the protesters all stopped. They just stared at me. I'll have to ignore them to get work done in the area. Heart Alex Day 4 The knocks won't stop. Day 5 I didn't have time to log that much yesterday because every time I sat down to write, someone would knock on my door. And it was always another protester trying to recruit me. Join us. Join us. At this point, I'm gonna give up opening the door and just ignore it. Heart, Alex. Day 6. I don't know what I was thinking by not opening the door. Now they won't stop. Another and another keep coming. My sanity is dropping every second. Help me. Day. They keep coming. I don't know what day it is anymore. I feel like I've been here forever. Day. Is it just me or are they growing louder? Day. They won't stop. I need help now. Day. I have to open it. I have no other choice. Day, do you still approve of our ruler? 
So you're wondering what you're still doing here inside of my chambers. You see, you've been such lovely guests that I might as well give you another story. Yes, you heard it right. You'll be listening to another story, my dear friends. So this next tale was written by Ronnie Fordham and will be narrated by two new prisoners, Miss Fearsome and the Baron. They just came here last night. They're actually delighted to tell the tale for you, which is titled, My Husband is a Serial Killer, and he's still out there. I loved Michael, even if he was a serial killer. He went missing one day before the police finally caught on. I had no idea. I was stunned. Not to mention betrayed, depressed, absolutely horrified by my husband's crimes. But what could I do? Michael and I were close, but apparently not close enough for him to draw me into his many murders, his torturous, systematic slaughter of over 20 women. Nor show me the way he photographed each and every one of them, both before and after, sending them to their gruesome deaths. Michael, always the sadistic shutterbug. I felt for his victims and their families. I really did. I cried every night for 11 months straight. Long ago came to the conclusion I was oblivious to living with a monster, and I fucking dealt with it. I wasn't defending shit, and certainly not Michael. Maybe the same psychopath who was able to lure countless women to their deaths could dupe his devoted wife. Who knew? And why was that so hard to believe? Especially with a man as sweet and handsome as him. But like buzzards, the media tore into my fragile flesh. I was the dumb housewife to what they dubbed the perfect husband. Just the dumb blonde. Never mind, I had a PhD and worked at St. Francis Hospital here in Columbus, Georgia. Goddamn social media was even worse. The abusive comments swarmed me. Everything from I was a dumb bitch to apparently an ugly old hag at 44. Apparently I was so jealous of other women and all my failed pregnancies, I let Michael do the dirty work. Let him exterminate those beautiful fertile women. Yeah, this was the narrative. As suspicious as they were, the police and the DA still cleared me, but not before a final press conference where the prosecutor played the not-enough-evidence card, just teasing the press enough for his own 15 minutes of fame to be able to be featured in the surefire documentaries where Lifetime and E would rip me apart. How could she not know when the murders happened under their roof, in their own basement, no less? The tabloids tormented me, more than the memories, to be honest. But I had no idea. Michael wasn't that way around me. I thought he was my soulmate the love of my life. We'd met in college over 20 years ago, both of us honor grads. At first we bonded over photography, nature, the arts, the very hobby that would become Michael's terrifying trademark. Michael wasn't tall, but stayed in good shape. He ran every day, and I certainly wasn't complaining when he kept his morning run ritual over the years. 
Like I said, he was handsome. His chiseled face complete with irresistible dimples, his brown curly hair as soft as those green eyes. When we first moved to our big house on Whitesville Road, I thought this was it. Our life was set. Michael and Sam Downing now had the American dream. Of course, being with someone so attractive and charming only intensified my own insecurities, even more so once I became a suspect, a media punching bag. Only unlike OJ and Casey Anthony, I didn't have a trial to lean on, didn't have anything to leak out to the public. I was never given a voice or chance, but at least the hospital stood by me. Columbus, Georgia, like a support group away, compared to the skeptical outside world. I guess we took care of our own out here, regardless of whether or not my friends and family thought I'd help the perfect husband kill those girls. Most of the time I kept to myself, no more travelling or exploring. Instead I just stayed inside our big brick house, two stories of soulless superficiality. Michael's gorgeous grin still stared at me from our many photographs, his spirit stuck in every cat ornament or surreal portrait he ever bought for me. I felt him everywhere, except the basement. I damn sure never went back there. I didn't care how much the police had collected evidence and washed out the grisly scene. I couldn't dare face the Downing slaughterhouse once more. Couldn't face the horrifying reality. What was worse was there was no closure. The cops took what they could and that was that. But Michael was still gone. He'd taken his Nikon D5 camera with him, so now we'd never know how many women he killed. How many corpses he'd have on display for his personal art exhibit. And I thought we probably never would. Michael was too smart, too clever. Beneath the harassment online and from the paparazzi, I wilted away for another agonizing year. My blonde hair now started to go grey, bags started popping up under my eyes and like a virus, a deadly combination of stress and midlife crisis crashed upon my once good looks. I was far from curvy, but I only grew skinnier. To my horror, even my tits started to sag. At this point, I had no chance at dating. At least I didn't think so. No longer did I feel attractive or talented, much less confident. When I felt at my lowest, loneliest, and yes, horniest, I sought attention online all under an anonymous name. But the only compliments this desperate girl got were from the more desperate guys, not to mention the hybristophilia, addled men, and women wanting me just for my undeserved infamy. I didn't talk to hardly anyone at all. Sure, the Columbus community didn't harass or insult me, not like the national media did, or national zeitgeist for that matter. But no one was exactly eager to swing by my house. No one invited me over. Forget margarita nights with the co-workers. My own family didn't even have me over for Christmas. Instead, there was only one person I interacted with on a daily basis. My neighbour, Sean Winslow. Nearing 80, or at least looking it, Sean was polite and respectful. The grandfather type who never married or had kids. Like me, he was all alone. And by sheer coincidence, all the other homes on Whitesville Road barricaded themselves from their neighbours with fancy iron pike fences and gates, quarantining themselves from Sean and I. Not that their isolation helped while Mike was still on the prowl, especially considering how Michael kidnapped and killed Tara Falls, one of the wealthier people out here, a mutilation by machete. Sean welcomed me back with open arms. His skin was still so smooth, his stark white hair so straight, his body muscular, his movements spry. 
as if we'd swapped ageing patterns. Sean seemed to grow younger and more spirited, while I grew decrepit both inside and out. To my relief, Sean believed me, because he too had been duped, felt betrayed by the love of my life. Every weekend, Michael and I used to visit Sean, so he too had been close to this living monster. Days after the shitstorm ensued, Sean had let me stay the night at his place. Sure, maybe he was just being an old perv. This was before the stress tarnished whatever good looks I had, after all. But Sean didn't make any moves. He never did. Instead, he comforted me. There, at his kitchen table, the two of us shared one of his older cabernets. The wine warmed me from the dread, and so did Sean's pleasant company. I looked out of a window, out toward the blue lights, the news vans, the media assault on 6660 Whitesville Road. An investigation still ongoing to this day. Sympathetic, Sean grabbed my hand. The supportive hold of a parent rather than a lover's lust. It's okay, Sam, he told me in his genteel southern accent. You couldn't have known. I looked into his piercing hazel eyes. No longer did I cry. Not now. Not when I knew I wasn't alone. No one could, Sean reassured. But then came a miserable milestone. The first of what I was sure would be a never-ending cycle of pain. One that wouldn't stop until my death. The one-year anniversary of our lives being buried. The January day Michael's darkest secrets were discovered. By me, the community and the world. And the day Michael slaughtered my personal life. His first kill without a blade. Of course, the networks were chomping at the bit. Just passing 12 months meant for more coverage, more specials. Televised investigations handled by incompetent talking heads and clickbait reporters. There would be exploitative reenactments of Michael's methodical crimes, theories on where he is now, and theories on how I got away with murder. I had nothing new to say. I didn't know why Michael did what he did, why he killed, why he used all sorts of vicious weapons from knives to hammers to kill so many women, or why he used his favourite weapon of all, the Nikon. The same exact camera he used to take pictures of his bloody trophies. At the recommendation of lawyers and loved ones, I declined the bias interviews, even when I knew that wouldn't be enough to turn down the army of press camping outside my door when the 21st arrived. But Sean came to the rescue, yet again. The offer of staying at his place during this tasteless holiday was too much for me to pass up. An escape from both the limelight and lynch mobs, and one that was less than a hundred yards away. On that cold January dawn, I migrated inside his house, well before the news crews and cameras began their stakeout, before I could become prey to this malicious pop culture. Sean's house was spacious, clean, besides the abundance of wine. He liked art as well. The many framed photographs and paintings perfect for his homemade museum. Throughout the day we hid inside, far from the madding media. No one bothered us. Sean's security cameras scaring away even the creepy Michael Downing fan club. But like a ghost, Michael still haunted me. The TV talked about him constantly. So many stations stayed dedicated to anniversary coverage, to discuss Michael or to accuse me. So Sean guided me back towards the kitchen table, back to the site of our better memories. Together we shared a few bottles of Pinot Grigio. Well, I'm glad I stole you away from them, Sean joked. Grinning, I took another sip. You and me both. 
Behind a warm smile, Sean poured more into my glass. A generous helping as always. I just got this bottle yesterday. They got that vineyard in Albany, you know. Oh really? That's cool. Sean leaned back, his muscles well on display through the jeans and flannel shirt. I just wanted to mark this special occasion, I suppose. Even I cracked a smile. Great idea. Well, I knew you'd be here. He leaned in closer. I always appreciate your company, Sam. My eyes scanned the room, doing everything they could to avoid the sickening soap opera outside my front yard. But the huge Keurig, the catalogue of Sean's nature photography, did nothing to ease the anxiety. Nothing to stifle Michael's deep voice, his piercing gaze, the elegy of our good memories. Honestly, it gets lonely out here, Sean went on. Feeling drunker by the second, I leaned against the table, trying to keep myself upright. Sean shook his glass. White wine splashed out. I now realised it was a glass he hadn't touched in quite some time. Unusual considering both of us were alcoholics. I miss the old days, Sam, he said, his voice sinking to a low tone, a southern accent shifting from high exuberance to deep reflection. The drinks had caught up to me. They hit so quick, so sudden. I looked over at Sean's refrigerator and the many magnets and photos. Several pictures looked familiar. There was St. Simon's Islands, beautiful beaches, Pascoan's psychedelia in Buena Vista, the same places Michael and I loved to visit. I miss when we all could be together. His voice drifting away. My eyes drifted out of consciousness. The room got blurry. Everything faded to black. The glass slipped through my hand and smashed against the marble tile. A deafening sound now reduced to a hollow echo. Through the haze, I confronted the bottle. What I was sure was drugged Albany Pinot Grigio. Sean reached towards me. I want us all together, Sam. That was the last thing I heard. I fell backwards in my seat, entered an unconscious realm. What felt like centuries was mere hours. I awoke later that night, confused, disorientated. I knew I'd been drugged. Lying on the ground, I looked all around me. Bright bulbs lit the claustrophobic room with clinical lab precision. Immediately, terror sunk in, and surrounding me were hundreds of photos. Enclosed in the gaudy frames were bodies and bodies, all of them women, some nude, some in torn clothes, but all the girls were bound and gagged in duct tape. All of them were dead. There were dissections, bludgeonings, decapitations, visceral, grisly murder at the hands of many different tools, and at the hands of one horrifying serial killer, my husband. Like Michael, the Nikon D5 showed no mercy. Every corpse was captured in a captivating light, in all their disturbing glory. From the walls, the collection of corpses watched me. The few faces that weren't mangled still had their eyes open in fear, the faces of death. Right by the red door was a long metal table, its surface covered by an arsenal of vicious weapons. There were knives, machetes, axes and gallons of dark dry blood. The blades ready to tear through flesh, and all they needed was a killer's hungry touch. I now knew where I was. The houses in this neighbourhood all had similar layouts, but there was no way this was my basement. Even if it looked like the scary scene that police had shown me one year ago, 
Somehow, Sean had made a shrine to Michael's work, a terrifying tribute to his prolific serial killer career. Then a muffled cry hit me, as did a nauseating smell. Turning, I saw a red-headed woman lying a few feet away. She was bound and gagged in duct tape, her ripped clothes covered in blood, her pale body covered in bruises. She couldn't have been older than 18, but she still fit Michael's M.O., or whatever the hell Sean's type was. The woman's eyes begged me for help. She squirmed beneath the tape, too weak to even crawl. Oh God, I yelled. I jumped up and ran towards her, desperate to help the young woman escape. Tears streamed down her eyes. Shivering, the woman struggled to move closer towards me. This close to her, I saw she was missing patches of skin, her pants stained with days of piss and shit. I reached out towards her, then the red door burst open. In came Sean, a sly smile on his handsome face, a silver hammer in one hand and a Nikon D5 in the other. Startled, I jumped back. My eyes watched Sean charging forward like a wolf ready to pounce on a vulnerable lamb. I stood petrified in fear, even as I heard the young woman shriek through that tape, heard her body flounder to the floor. Without hesitation, Sean sunk the hammer claw straight into her face, right between the woman's screaming eyes. Blood blasted all over us, each of us coated in a quick crimson shower. The girl fell straight back, her body silent and still. The hammer, an arrow into her forehead's bullseye. A fast flash caught the post-mortem photo. The young woman, now a morbid model. Perfect for Sean's morbid museum. Sean lowered the Nikon, revealing an even bigger smile. Pleased at his latest trophy. Horrified, I glared at him. What the hell are you doing? Was all I could scream. Sean's cackle became a soundtrack to this slaughterhouse in his death basement. Angry, I took a step towards him. What the fuck is wrong with you? I waved towards his latest victim. Did you do this together? Both of you sick fucks. Not at all. Sean yelled in a deep, proud voice. Crying out, I lunged towards him, towards the old sack of shit. In one quick push, Sean pushed me straight down, his strength so sneaky I felt hard. Groaning, I looked up at him, his muscular physique, the shoulders and chiseled chest so unnatural for someone near 80. With a theoretical flourish, Sean withdrew a switchblade and flicked it out. He set his hungry sights on me. I have been waiting a long time for this, Sam. Disturbed, I watched him lean in towards me. But inside, I built up courage. Or at least tried to. You have no idea. Sean went on. He put the blade to my face. Faint bloodstains were all over the fucking thing. Bits of female flesh included. I suppressed the tears, but stayed sickened by everything around me. I want you. Sean teased. Embracing anger, I threw a first punch, right at Sean's nose. My aim perfect, covering his face, Sean staggered back. Ah, fuck! When I looked on, simultaneously stunned and scared, unable to move, to make a sound, there stood Sean, clutching his bloodied nose and dangling filleted flesh, the long strands of skin like shredded paper. He glared at me behind one green eye and one brown one through the blood, pale powder smeared across his hands. Red rain had washed away the disguise, and now it was all clear, especially when I saw that hazel contact lying on Michael's latest victim. 
Raising the switchblade, my husband confronted me, standing tall in the death room he'd recreated in Sean's basement. A sadistic smirk now plastered on his face. Looks like we're together again, Sam. His deep voice bellowed. Right where I always wanted you. I staggered to my feet, too nervous to stop the chills but too upset to shed tears. Why, Michael? I yelled. With cool indifference, Michael ripped off the remaining latex. The makeup now wiped clean to reveal the face of a cold-blooded killer. Fake skin still dripped off Michael's fingertips. But his grip on that blade stayed steady. On the camera as well. Why are you doing this? I hurled at him. Michael took a calm step towards me. I had to escape, babe. Both his hands now grabbed onto the Nikon as he got closer and closer. So I did the only thing I could. I came here. This Michael was similar, sure. Still handsome and charismatic. Still the man I married. But deep down I felt dread. Disgust at the Michael Downing who fooled me. The perfect husband I didn't know. Betrayal battered my senses. But I wasn't going to cry. Not over him. Not ever again. Just inches away, Michael pointed the camera at me. A crude spotlight for my fear. I killed Sean. It was tough, but I had no choice. I just glared at him, watched Michael as he got ready to take a photo. Happy anniversary, babe, Michael teased. There, right in front of me, he took the picture, with no regard for Sean. For all the years I loved him, instead I was just another temporary thrill, yet another victim. Grinning, Michael lowered the camera. I'll take my time with you, Sam. I stood there silent and still. I felt violated, sickened, hurt. Cringing, I let Michael caress my face for one final time. Just like I always wanted to, Michael said. Relishing the torture, he leaned in close. His movements soft and slow. How about a kiss for the perfect husband, babe? I then made my move quick punch into Michael's firm chest. My long year of agony now released in that one act of violence. Groaning, Michael fell to his knees. He dropped the knife. My onslaught continued. I just laid into him, one hit after the other. Now I was glad to have kept the wedding ring on. More force for that left-handed hook. Michael's muscular frame hit the ground, lying parallel to his last victim. Two bodies for this basement funeral. A funeral for my ruined past, for my shattered dreams. Crying out, Michael struggled on the ground, his face battered and bruised, blood pouring from his broken nose. Power surged through me, strength, confidence. All the violence sent me into a pure state of euphoria, the most pleasure I'd felt since the honeymoon stage. Exited, I snatched up the Nikon from Michael's weakened grasp, aimed it at him as if the camera were a pistol, the smile long gone. Michael glowered at me. You bitch! You bitch! You fucking bitch! Give me that! Defiant for the first time in this horror movie marriage, I held the camera steady, the lens more unflinching than my harsh gaze. Give me the fucking camera! Michael yelled. Rage won out, as did desire. I snapped my first death portrait. But did you really think I'd turn Michael in? Expose his existence for all the world to see. Clear my name for these fucking assholes. Of course not. 
Sure, I ended up dumping Carla Douse's body off on Whittlesley Boulevard, a chance for her family to get the closure I finally got. But I did nothing with Sean's place. Nothing other than take a few souvenirs with me. Months later, and the kills still keep me aroused, keep me excited. I think about those tied-up bodies, the naked young men helpless to my touch, their blood, the slow slaughters, the way the boys flinch when I take that fun first photo, and then how I position their beautiful corpses for the even more fun final shoot. Photography hasn't been this exhilarating since college, I'll tell you that. I renovated my basement. Now it's my death room rather than Michael's. Sure, I got a similar layout, a pink wooden table full of vicious sharp blades at my disposal, but at least I keep the slaughterhouse stylized. I love the pink wallpaper, the psychedelic, now blood-stained rugs, but most of all it's my personal museum. The framed photos of dead hot guys running up and down those walls on my victims, not to mention my newfound pride and joy, the fetish I never knew I had. Late at night, I'll fall asleep thinking about the kills, fantasize over them, salivate over taking those pictures, dream about murdering those fine-ass men. By now, the photos of Michael and I are gone. Everything that reminded me of him are gone with them. The cat figurines, the surreal portraits. This is my house now, especially that goddamn basement, Sam's slaughterhouse. The only thing Michael has left me is himself the crumpled prisoner in my death room. Like an entrapped lab rat, he just lies there in duct tape, too beaten and blooded to do anything. Both his Achilles are sliced, his tongue ripped out, fingers lopped off. I don't mind toying with him from time to time, but I do have other studs to tend to, more alluring hotties to play with. Their photos now form my basement trophy case, that Nikon my deadliest weapon of all. I understand Michael's desire now. I get why he was a serial killer. The same motive fuels my bloodlust in the basement and in bed. What I do behind that big red door gives me exhilaration, an escape from the boredom. So much pleasure I carry it with me to the bedroom every single night. Now I never feel lonely. After so many murders I feel better. The carnage and catharsis for my confidence. I've matched Michael's strength. Now muscular and fit, I look amazing. The blonde hair is back, the wrinkles held at bay. I look ten years younger, and I use my attractive looks to my advantage, just like Michael did. In the basement, I scan the many framed photos, the many victims I'll be thinking of later tonight, and the same murders I'll be dreaming over for an eternity. I steal a look at my unconscious husband, divorced closer than ever considering Michael's dying state. His cuts and scars have only been growing deeper these past few days. Then my eyes drift towards Adam, the college kid I picked up last week. A jock with a nice smile and long black hair. The slit throat now made him even prettier. So did the blood all over that amazing body. A perfect picture for my gallery. A sharp vibration cut through my admiration. A phone call from my latest date, Johnny Cullen. He was a cute, skinny black guy in his thirties, one with a sympathetic heart that I couldn't wait to carve out. Dressed to kill, I turned towards the table, towards the butcher's knife I had planned on using later, not to mention the other tools forming my hardware horror fantasies. The media always wanted me to be the killer, and so did the rest of the world, even Columbus, Georgia, 
even my friends and family. And now, well, I was going to give them that bitch. Meet Sam Downing, photographer and serial killer, the perfect wife. stories I have for you today. Thank you so much for coming, and please join us again here soon. We'll have more stories ready for you here inside of my chambers of home.